You're listening to Smarter Conservative Radio, show 30. Hey everybody, this is Patrick Ketchum, host of Smarter Conservative Radio. Really appreciate you joining us today. It's going to be a good episode, very interesting stuff. A lot's going on right now, of course. Donald Trump is the President of the United States, and the media buzz never stops. This week, oh man, this week was CPAC, really interesting stuff. Interesting stuff leading up to CPAC. Milo Yiannopoulos was going to speak there, and then he was uninvited for a very obvious re- I mean, he shouldn't have been invited in the first place, but he was uninvited for a pretty big scandal that just uh, broke. And then, of course, uh, Mike Pence spoke at CPAC. Donald Trump spoke at CPAC. Uh, Reince Priebus and Steve Bannon appeared together at CPAC. Pretty interesting stuff. And so we're going to get into all that stuff, including the the uh, disinviting of me- several members of the media, including the exclusion of several networks to a press gaggle of Sean Spicer's yesterday. So we'll talk about all that stuff coming up. Let's jump into our history moment of the day. All right, so we all know that Trump is not getting along extremely well with the media, right? The guy stands up for himself. The guy doesn't like bad press, and especially when he feels he's being mistreated, which is pretty much all the time, if you know Donald Trump well. It's, it's actually kind of amazing because I've heard all my life, all my life, that you cannot get ahead with a victim mentality. I don't know anyone who plays the part of the victim more frequently or with more skill than Donald Trump himself. So it's, it's a pretty interesting quirk to his personality that he is always the victim. But he is right about one thing, that the media is very biased to one side, right? So he specifically barred, what, Politico, the New York Times, the L.A. Times, CNN, and, and a few others. So these are very left-leaning media organizations. He's not the first president to have run-ins with the media, however. We talked about last week when he mentioned Thomas Jefferson actually criticized newspapers heavily during his presidency. But I want to go back just a few presidents, back to the 1970s when Richard Milhouse Nixon was president of the United States, and he had some run-ins with the media. The media, this is sort of the first time that the media really started going after a person. They didn't like him for a long ways back. So Richard Nixon was actually the vice president to Dwight D. Eisenhower, This was back in the 50s. He was just a young guy. You know, he sort of got his start calling out communists when that was a big thing, you know, the McCarthy era in the Congress. And and that's when the media really started to dislike this guy. You know, Nixon was a really smart guy, very talented politician and and, uh, and just brilliant. Um, But he made a lot of the media very angry with that. And, you know, he had that sort of debacle when he ran against JFK in the 1960s. And, uh, and he came across badly to the media, and they, and they sort of portrayed him poorly in front of the public. And so he had this decades-old feud with the media going on, but nothing like it was during his presidency. You know, Richard Nixon was actually a very, very popular president of the United States. He was, he was you know, Trump talks about him winning so many of the electoral votes. Richard Nixon won an amazing landslide. I think he may have lost one or two states Think about that. I I think Trump won 30 states. Richard Nixon won upwards of 45-plus states. I mean, it was just an incredible sweep. And yet the the, the press gave him a really hard time, gave Nixon a really hard time. And so I just want to play this clip of Nixon chastising the press, and it's pretty funny. So the audio isn't wonderful, but you can uh, make it out here. I have never heard or seen such outrageous 
vicious distorted reporting in 27 years of public life. I'm not blaming anybody for that. Perhaps what happened is that what we did uh, brought it about, and therefore uh, the media decided that they would have to uh, take that particular on. But when people are pounded night after night uh, with that kind of frantic, hysterical reporting, it naturally shakes their confidence. And yet, don't get the impression that you arouse my anger. <laughs> you see, I can't have that impression. <laughs> you see, one can only be angry with those he respects. Ooh, now that was a burn. That was a Nixon burn. That was uh, it, it singed the press there. So obviously there was a lot of hostility even back, uh, you know, 30, 40 years ago between the White House and the press corps. You know, there's there's a lot of news out today. Trump just made news by saying that he will not attend the White House Correspondents' Dinner. You know, this is huge news. That the, the CNN and, and the New York Times were talking about, hey, Maybe we won't attend because we've been so offended by Trump. Trump says, you know, screw it. I'm not going to attend. It's stupid. And so he wished everyone, well, I hope you have a good time. But he said, I'm not going to go. Personally, I think the White House Correspondents' Dinner is insane. Right? It's, you, you watch it, and everyone is in these really fancy gowns. And you see just the worst. You, know, so you see, like, Katie Couric sitting up there, sm- smiling like a Cheshire cat at everything, every joke against every Republican. You know, it's just the most ridiculous display. And, and for what? What? You're, you're, you're pleasing some media outlets. You know, you're, you're buddy-buddying up to people who really hate you and are going to slander you in the news that the very next day. I think it's great he's not going. I think it's stupid. More... More benefit. He'll get more benefit from spending a few hours with the American people at a rally, which I'm sure is what he's going to do, or maybe have a fundraiser for some uh, veterans. If I know Donald Trump, that's probably what he's going to do. All right, so that was a history moment. Let's go on to the economics moment, which is also sort of a historical moment. There's this pretty common misconception that directly following the Great Depression or the, you know, the crash of 29, Herbert Hoover was the president, and that he did absolutely nothing to help the American people get back on, on their feet, help the economy to recover, right? He wouldn't do anything. He sort of adopted this laissez-faire way of uh, economic uh, practice and, and as far as the government went, and that he didn't do anything, and that's why FDR came in, who started all these government programs and then saved the nation, right? All right, false. <laughs> Almost everything about that is false. But the thing I want to focus on today is the fact that Herbert Hoover actually did so many of the things that FDR uh, ended up doing during his tenure as president of the United States. The thing is, FDR just did them 10 times bigger than Herbert Hoover did, right? So Herbert Hoover did raise taxes. He did start all these government programs, and um, and it wasn't helping the economy, and that's why FDR came in. And he had a lot more grace, a lot more charm, and went a lot bigger than Herbert Hoover did. And so here's, uh, here's Ron Paul. He explains a little bit about this. But uh, Hoover... Uh, Hoover was more of a problem uh, than most people realize. He, he did not believe in laissez-faire. He did not learn the lesson of something he should have learned because he was very much involved in politics at the time, and that was the uh, depression of, uh, of 1921 after, uh, after the World War I. And uh, back then, even though it was the first depression that came after the Fed was uh, organized, 
uh, they were they still uh, had an attitude and uh, of hands off. You know, they weren't supposed to do anything. So the depression was bad, but it lasted a short time. Liquidation of debt and liquidation of bad investment. Hey, we'll all go back to work. So you'd think that would have been a lesson because that was the tradition. Um, but when the depression hit. Hoover came in, and he was a super interventionist. There was one program called the Refinance uh, Re, uh, Organization, which it literally sounded like uh, what came out of the uh, uh, financial crisis of 19, uh, 2008. How are we going to finance people? And they, they financed the bad debt and the farmers. And one thing that uh, and there, there was a lot, uh, there was a lot of this uh, pressure on industry and the farmers, and they said that uh, you know um, don't uh, they, they, they wanted higher prices, and they worked with the farmers, and the farmers would uh, do everything possible to get prices up by diminishing production. So they would plow crops under to push prices up because the farmers were in trouble. Then they would, the government would come along and bail out the farmers with, uh, with easy loan. So it made no sense uh, whatsoever. Uh, and it was hands off. And of course, uh, what Hoover also did, he raised taxes in the midst of all that. All right. So that is our economics moment. Let's move on to the news from this week. Well, first off, let's talk about the White House banning Several news outlets the other day during a White House gaggle. Okay, so press conference is more formal. The the, the spokesperson or the, the actual candidate or the official is standing at the front of the room and they're talking to everyone. A gaggle is sort of an informal thing where you get into a corner of a room and uh, media can just ask you a few questions. It's shorter. It's less formal, right? It's it's not usually taped. It's it's they're maybe recording your voice or whatever, but it's it's just sort of an, a, a less formal. Uh, way to interact with the press. So Spicer does this, and they uninvite, they uninvite CNN, the New York Times, the LA uh, Times, and, and a few other uh, Politico, maybe BuzzFeed. Um, these people are not invited, and the press goes wild. Really, I mean, this is this is Trump is now full Hitler. Now he is suppressing freedom of speech, and, uh, and let's take a listen to what CNN had to say. I'm Jake Tapper. The White House today appearing to take punitive action against news organizations. Press Secretary Sean Spicer in the People's House just briefed reporters on the day's news. It was at the White House, of course. He did not allow news outlets, including CNN and the New York Times and the Los Angeles Times and Politico and others, to attend that off-camera briefing, which is known as a gaggle. This is a wild deviation from basic White House protocol, which normally allows any credentialed news organization to participate. For more, let's go right to CNN. Sarah Murray, she's live in the White House briefing room. And Sarah, I have to say, even the darkest days of the Obama White House's war against Fox News, the Obama White House never banned Fox from attending any sort of press gaggle or briefing. This is clearly President Trump punishing news organizations for providing basic accountability. Well, Jake, it was a little perplexing to see how this played out today because it's not unusual, for instance, for the White House to do something like that with a pool, which is, of course, a small group of reporters who represents the entire press pool, or even if they wanted to do a private meeting, for instance, with a group of columnists. But what is bizarre to see the White House hand-selecting a variety of different news outlets across the board and blocking others. So, for instance, they allowed every other major television network except for CNN into this briefing 
which is outside uh, the realm of what we normally see from the White House. It's very bizarre to allow newspapers into a briefing like this, but to exclude the New York Times. So they did seem to opt for some outlets they believe are more favorable toward the president, places like Breitbart, places like the Washington Times, and opted to exclude places like CNN, the New York Times, and Politico that the president has been directly critical of. And Sarah, did the White House give any explanation as to why these news organizations, including CNN, were excluded? I've asked a number of White House aides today in the communication shop specifically about why they hand-selected some reporters to be included and decided to exclude others. They have not answered that question. They have only said that it was originally going to be a pooled gaggle off-camera. Then they decided to expand the pool. Sean Spicer said that that was his decision to expand the pool. But they have not said why they decided to, to sort of cherry-pick these outlets. And, Jake, it's worth noting that in this gaggle that was off-camera that CNN was excluded from. The main focus was CNN's own excellent reporting today on contacts between the White House Chief of Staff and the FBI. Sarah Murray, thank you so much. I don't want to spend too much time discussing this issue because we have a lot of news to cover today, but let's not make any mistake about what's happening here. A White House that has had some difficulty telling the truth and that has seemed to have trouble getting up to speed on the basic competent functioning of government, and a president who seems particularly averse to any criticism and has called the press the enemies of the American people, they are taking the next step in attempting to avoid checks and balances and accountability. It's not acceptable. In fact, it's petulant and indicative of a lack of basic understanding of how an adult White House functions. All right. All right. Jake Tapper. That is that is great. And Jake Tapper isn't a bad guy. He's, he's usually pretty good on these issues. The thing is, you know, he's saying that this is not the way an adult White House would act. But you know, the press, the media, they have no credibility when it comes to acting like adults, when it comes to being fair or giving equal time to both sides of the argument or having an equally balanced staff as far as Republicans, Democrats, conservatives, liberals. You know, they are all one side of the issue. Republicans are always wrong. They are always bad. They always have to be looked at with suspicion. And Democrats are always fighting for the little guy and are always trying to make things fair and, and you know, should be praised. And Obama had never had a scandal in his whole entire presidency, and it was a scandal-free White House. You know, all this stuff comes from the mainstream media, and it especially comes from CNN, NBC, CBS, ABC, and papers like the New York Times and, 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 and others that have absolutely one agenda, and that is to make Republicans look bad. Because, you know, it's an ideological war. And finally, we have somebody. We, we actually, you know, Rush Limbaugh uh, this week was talking about conservatives that are thinkers, conservatives that are writers, and conservatives that are fighters. And that's sort of what we have in Donald Trump, right? There's, there's someone who's actually willing to fight these guys. And he's in this tricky situation because, you know, sort of the foundation of our country is that we're able to disagree with each other and not put each other in jail, right? And this isn't even close to that, but people still get nervous. And so he has to, he has to be careful the way that he approaches this, the way he, he, he approaches this, not with the media, but with the American people. And that's why we see him talking directly to the people and giving them rallies, you know, and talking to them on Twitter and, and in other ways. So he needs to make this a, a appeal. And I don't even think that Fox News is going to help him as much as he needs it to reach the American people the way that uh, he really wants to and that his administration really needs to be reaching the American people and the people who voted for him in the first place. Next, I'm going to play a few clips of the speech Trump gave at CPAC. 
this week. So this was a big speech. You know, Pence gave an incredible speech. I love Pence's speech. Uh, Trump's speech was a little bit more rambling. It was a little bit more Trumpian in his uh, in his delivery. But he talks about the press again. He talks about a few other things in his plans for the future. So here are some highlights from that speech this week. You know, if you remember my first major speech, sit down, everybody, come on. You know, the dishonest media, they'll say, he didn't get a standing ovation. You know why? No, you know why? Because everybody stood and nobody sat. I want you all to know that we are fighting the fake news. It's fake, phony, fake. A few days ago, I called the fake news the enemy of the people, and they are. They are the enemy of the people. Because they have no sources, they just make them up when there are none. I would have come last year, but I was worried that I would be, at that time, too controversial. We wanted border security. We wanted very, very strong military. We wanted all of the things that we're going to get. And people consider that controversial, but you didn't consider it controversial. Let me state this as clearly as I can. We are going to keep radical Islamic terrorists the hell out of our country. We are getting the bad ones out. These are bad dudes. We're getting the bad ones out. People that shouldn't be, whether it's drugs or murder or other things. Basically, all I've done is keep my promise. The core conviction of our movement is that we are a nation that put and will put its own citizens first. All right, so it was actually a really interesting speech. It was a long, it was a long speech. I think it took me three settings to get through that whole speech. It was very much in his style. He talks about the media. He talks about the promises that he's keeping. And basically what he's done as president is gone through the list of promises, and we can see this in most clearly in things like the appointment of Judge uh, Gorsuch, Neil Gorsuch from Colorado, right? He was one of the 20 judges on Trump's list of judges that he would nominate from to the Supreme Court, and he did it. And so, it, you know, I, I've said this before, people have put it this way, that Trump, you know, he, he talks larger than life. He can BS you a lot when he's talking, when you're listening to him, but he doesn't lie so much as the typical politician. We'll see. He's only been a politician for a few months here. We, we, we might get some uh, differences in the future. But so far, that's sort of what his character has been. So CPAC stands for the Conservative Political Action Conference, right? And this is every year. So a few weeks... What, a week ago, I heard that it was announced that Milo Yiannopoulos would be the keynote speaker, would deliver the keynote address to CPAC. And I was really unhappy about this. Milo Yiannopoulos is an alt-writer, okay? See, he is a, a nationalist guy. He's a populist guy. He's a huge fan of Donald Trump. And sort of the worst parts of Donald Trump, right? Sort of the, sort of the parts of Donald Trump that... That, is the, that are the bully and, uh, and sort of the less educated, more ignorant side of his political stances. Now, I'm, I'm not bashing on Donald Trump here. It's just Milo and his followers and his fans really like that about po politicians. When you're nationalists, when you stand up for yourselves, and when you sort of isolate yourselves from the rest of the world. And he's been leading this charge from his position at Breitbart News. Right, Breitbart uh, has become just this it was this tiny, tiny little website 
started by Andrew Breitbart, who since passed away, uh, to talk, you know, to put forth conservative views and that kind of thing. And there was a lot of different big names around it, and there still are, but one of them was Ben Shapiro. Ben Shapiro left during the campaign when Breitbart refused to cover Trump, right? You remember when Trump's campaign manager, Corey Lewandowski, grabbed Michelle Fields, left bruises on her arms, and then uh, Breitbart would not defend Michelle Fields, who was its own reporter. And so some big names from that uh, news outlet left. Uh, you know, regardless of that, they've grown exponentially due to the due to the rise of Donald Trump and sort of the alt-right uh, uh, fan base that surrounds him. And so Milo Yiannopoulos got his start there. He was a writer for and, and an editor for Breitbart. You know, he worked alongside people like Steve Bannon, who we'll get to a little bit later. But Milo's the kind of guy, you know, he, he just, he's sort of this very radical right-wing person without being conservative. He does not identify with conservatism, right? Small government constitutionalism, that's not uh, Milo Yiannopoulos, and that's not this alt-right movement. It's more about, hey, our country is our country, and we should put up, you know, borders and and not trade freely with other countries, and um, we shouldn't be letting people in here, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of white nationalism in that, and I I don't want to overdo that statement, but there are a lot of Milo Yiannopoulos supporters and Breitbart readers and supporters and tweeters who have sent some really ugly stuff, you know, including to people like, uh, you know, Ben Shapiro, who left there, and many others. You know, if they're Jews, they'll send them pictures of, you know, the Holocaust or Donald Trump about to pull the switch on a gas chamber, you know, and say, hey, this is your family. Or, you know, just really gross stuff. And this is, these are the kinds of people that Milo Yiannopoulos stirs up and attracts around him, and he likes it. And, you know, his argument is that it's, it's all free speech, you know, and people are getting a little unruly, and, uh, and that's because, you know, we've been suppressed all this time by political correctness, and that's t- the way we need to break through it is just saying the meanest, most disgusting, outrageous things we possibly can, and that's how we're going to get our country back and our freedom. And I just think that's a load of crap. And this has been his shtick for a few years now. You know, this is how he's gotten national nor- notoriety, at least for the last two years is he goes out and he says really despicable things, especially about women, Jews, uh, minorities, other minorities. And, and it's not the kind of message we want to be sending out there. It's just, it's way too ugly. It's way too extreme. And it's just not us. It's not conservatism. And he says it himself. And that's the one good thing about Milo Yiannopoulos is that he doesn't pretend to be a conservative because he's clearly not. He's a populist nationalist. And those are words that's Steve Bannon used a lot at CPAC and got big rounds of applause for using them, which is a little disconcerting to me. What happened this week, after it was it was announced that Milo would be the keynote speaker, some tapes surfaced, I'm not going to play them here, but some tapes surfaced, just because there's so much profanity, of, uh, of some online chats that he had, and they were all recorded and videotaped and stuff, of him talking about uh, child abuse. So Milo apparently was... Uh, the victim of sexual abuse as a, a t- as a teenager, a young teenager, um, and and he talks about this a little bit, and 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 it's obviously you know you just listen to this guy and he's he is so screwed up, you know this this is a person who is just deeply wounded and is lashing out and wounding others, and it's you know it, is this this sort of person that you want leading a movement that you're you know this person just. He needs treatment, in my opinion, Milo Yiannopoulos. And so on this chat, he talks about how, you know, children, 13-year-olds, 14-year-olds, 
if they're sleeping with 28, 29 year olds, maybe that's not so bad. And, you know, they can probably give their consent if they're doing that kind of thing at that age. And, you know, eight years old, that's probably too young, but 13, 14 year olds, um, yeah, they could probably give consent because I did uh, in this kind of thing. That's what he was saying on there. And so that tape came out, and, and almost immediately the next day, CPAC uninvited, uninvited Milo Yiannopoulos. And that's a great thing. I, I, but I don't think he should have been invited in the first place. The fact that he was invited in the first place, I think, is an indication that there are some real problems and a real identity crisis right now within the conservative movement, within the Republican Party. You know, Democrats, Democrats are falling apart in their own ways, but we have this sort of identity crisis. Who are we? You know, because we don't know who Donald Trump is yet. Donald Trump is sort of this practical guy without a set, uh, an ideology that's set in stone. And it's becoming more clear, but as it does, we see all these pieces that don't fit with traditional Reagan conservatism. And so who are we? That's sort of the question we've been asking. So uh, the next day, Milo Yiannopoulos gives this statement where he resigns from Breitbart. He says, you know, he apologizes for it. So here's just a little clip of that. I'm a gay man and a child abuse victim. Between the ages of 13 and 16, two men touched me in ways they should not have. One of those men was a priest. My relationship with my abusers is complicated by the fact that at the time, I didn't perceive what was happening as abusive. But I can look back now and see that it was. I still don't view myself as a victim, but clearly I am one. Looking back, I see the effects that this had on me. My employer, Breitbart News, has stood by me while others caved. They've allowed me to carry conservative and libertarian ideas to communities that would otherwise never have had them. They have been a significant factor in my success, and I'm grateful for the freedom and for the friendships that I forged there. But I would be wrong to allow my poor choice of words to detract from my colleague's important job, which is why today I'm resigning from Breitbart Effective immediately. This decision is mine alone. When your friends have done right by you, it's only right to do right by them. And for me, that means stepping aside so my colleagues at Breitbart can get back to the great work they do. All right, so that's Milo Yiannopoulos. I don't think he's going ever anywhere. I think he is a true danger to the conservative mo movement that, uh, that, that we have in the country right now. I, I think that this is a very destructive voice. And I hope that conservatives don't prop up anyone else like this and give them the, the, the keynote address at CPAC, for example, in the future, because this is a really bad guy, and we knew it even before the, these latest comments were revealed. All right, so let's, I want to listen to a tape of Priebus and Bannon. So Reince Priebus, who's the chief of staff, and Steve Bannon, who is the chief strategist in the White House. Lots of rumors that these are sort of two uh, distinct camps within the White House who are always feuding with each other, right? Priebus and Bannon, they don't get along. Priebus is sort of this traditional Republican who is mainstream, and Bannon is, you know, the, the, the thought leader of the alt-right, you know, used to be the head of Breitbart and very extreme nationalist populist sort of guy and he is and so and, and, and previous is all the, th the things that I named before but but they got on stage together and they actually talked together so it was pretty interesting let me ask you two uh, we read a lot about you two um, that's all good but I bet not all of it's accurate I bet not all of it's accurate I bet uh, there's some things that don't get written correctly let me ask each one of you what's the biggest misconception about what's going on in the Donald Trump White House. 
well, in regard to us two, I think the biggest mi misconception is everything that you're reading. Um, we, we, ba we, we share an office suite together. Uh, we're basically together from 6.30 in the morning until about 11 o'clock at night. I have a little thing called the war room. He has a fireplace with you know, <laughs> nice sofas. And um, it's, uh, it's actually something that you all have helped build, uh, which is when you bring together, and what this election showed, and what President Trump showed, and let's not kid ourselves, I mean, I can talk about data and ground game, and Steve can talk about big ideas, but the truth of the matter is, Donald Trump, President Trump, brought together the party and the conservative movement. And I've got to tell you, if the party and the conservative movement are together, similar to Steve and I, it can't be stopped. And President Trump was the one guy, he was the one person and I can say it after overseeing 16 people kill each other. It, it was Donald Trump that was able to bring this, this party and this movement together. And Steve and I know that. And we live it every day. Our job is to get the agenda of President Trump through the door and on pen and paper. You know, but we've known it since August 15th. And I think if you look at, you know, the opposition party and how they portrayed the campaign, how they portrayed the transition and now they're portraying the administration, it's always wrong. I mean, on, on the very first day that Kellyanne and I started, we reached out to Ryan, Sean Spicer, Katie. It's the same team that, you know, every day was grinding away on the campaign, the same team that did the transition. And if you remember, you know, the campaign was the most chaotic, you know, by the media's description, most chaotic, most disorganized, most unprofessional, had no earthly idea what they were doing. And then you saw them all crying and weeping that night on, on, on the 8th <laughs> when... When, and, and the reason it worked, the reason it worked is, is, is President Trump. I mean, Trump had those ideas, had that energy, had that vision that could yeah. galvanize a team around him of disparate, look, we're a coalition. You know, a lot of people think, you know, have strong beliefs about different things, but we understand that you can come together to win. And we understood that from August 15th, and, and we never had a doubt, and Donald Trump never had a doubt that he was going to win. And, and I think that that is the power of this movement. All right, so Bannon, not in this clip, but in other clips, mentions uh, populism and nationalism. It sort of lays out the ideological uh, flow of Donald Trump's administration in, in this. And it's really, really interesting. And so he's not holding anything back. He's saying we need to put America first in the international stage. We're not going to be messing around with this stuff anymore. We're not going to be spending all of our wealth as a nation on fixing international crises. We're going to focus on America first. He talks about trade. We're going to have bilateral trade with, you know, that means country to country. We're going to set up an agreement with France. Then we're going to set up a different agreement with Germany, and then a separate one with England, as opposed to one huge trade agreement like NAFTA or TPP, that kind of thing. And so, very interesting ideology, and it was, it was actually pretty cool to see them up there talking together, because I, I don't think I've ever heard Steve Bannon's <laughs> talk. I've seen the SNL sketches where he's always uh, the Grim Reaper, so I, I assumed his voice sounded a little bit more creepy, but I guess it didn't. Um, all right, so I want to end. We're going to end with my recommendation for the week, and it is a song from a movie, My Fair Lady. My wife hates this movie, but I really like it. And the song is On the Street Where You Live. This was a song that was actually written by Alan J. Lerner with music by Frederick Lowe.
And these two guys work together on so many incredible pieces and, uh, and musicals and movies. Uh, you know, they did uh, Life of the Party in 42, What's Up in 43, The Day Before Spring in 45, Brigadoon in 47, Paint Your Wagon in 51, My Fair Lady in 56, Camelot, my personal favorite, in 60, and then many, many others. And they did several films as well, Camelot, Brigadoon, Paint Your Wagon, The Little Prince. These guys are very, very talented. So this song is, and it was recorded, this song was recorded over and over and over again, you know, by Dean Martin and by Nat King Cole. And it was always went up to the top of the charts uh, when it was released, you know, number four. It was number one in England when it was released. So when you listen to this song, I want you to just imagine this being on the radio today. Not just being on the radio today, but being a number one hit on the radio today. And if you do that carefully enough, you will weep for our culture. Because this is just a great song, but it, it wouldn't stand a chance. This is nothing like what you hear when you turn on the radio these days. And, you know, here's another thing about this song. It perfectly captures that feeling when you, that you have when, when you're just, you know, this guy in, in My Fair Lady, he doesn't know the girl very well, but he's just enamored. He's just so excited by the prospect of getting to know her better. You know, he, it's sort of this instant, I think I love you and all this kind of thing. And so he wants to be close to her. He wants to get to know her. He, it's, not, it's not a mature romantic love yet. It's sort of the beginnings of something. Uh, and, and you've probably felt this, you know, if you've, ever, if you've ever had this experience. I know when I, I met my wife, we lived in the same apartment complex. And this captures so well those feelings. You know, she lived in apartment 18, and I lived in 25. And whenever I walked out the door, I immediately looked over at her door to see if she was there, right? See if I could catch her eye or wave it or whatever. This is before we were dating, but when I was totally enamored you know, with, with Madeline before we'd actually started dating. And so this song is just so well done. It, it captures this feeling uh, so well. At least it does for me. We'll see if it does for you. So here is On the Street Where You Live. I have often walked down this street before But the pavement always stayed beneath my feet before at once am I several stories high, knowing I'm on the street where you live. Are there lilac trees in the heart of town? Can you hear a lot in any other part of town? Does enchantment pour out of every door? No, it's just the street where you live, and know oh, the towering feeling just Okay, that's it for us this week. Thanks so much for joining us. If you like the show, please share it with a friend. Go to iTunes, leave us a rating and a review. It really helps us out. Until next week, I'm Patrick Ketchum. See ya.